I usually begin my talks at IBMC by paying homage to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, so I won't do it in a formal way here, but it's just enough to, to say that without the triple gem, that's what we usually refer to those as, I wouldn't be here today. Maybe a lot of you wouldn't be here today. So it's very fortunate for us that we live in such a time when the Dharma is so readily available when we have the Buddhist teachings to follow and we have community to help support us in that. Now, my, my topic for today it shifted a little bit. I'm going to try to redirect it back to the topic, but a couple days ago, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple days ago, uh, Lion's Roar published an, an article on psychedelic drugs and Buddhism. And uh, although I think the, the person who wrote the article was, was trying to be even-handed with the topic, it still seemed to come off favorably on the side of psychedelics as being a valid part of Buddhism, which, uh, uh, to say the least, I, I disagree with. And uh, it, was, it was a difficult... It was a difficult read, to, to be honest, because there were some really big names in there, surprising names, talking about the benefits of things like ayahuasca and mushrooms and ecstasy as, as a part of meditation, uh, specifically a part of the Dharma and Buddhist meditation. Now, I, I won't soapbox too much about this, partially because I think it against the stream I'm probably preaching to the choir, but um, it, it is odd to see that as something put forward as part of the Dharma, not just in terms of, of the precepts, with the fifth being pretty clear about intoxicants, but also just the nature of meditation and what it actually seeks to accomplish, why, why we train the mind and how we train the mind and how psychedelic drugs might affect that, and perhaps negatively, hard to say. But this is such a, a deeper and, and, and uh, perhaps contentious, controversial topic than I had in mind. Like, I wanted to talk about how I, maybe I drink too many milkshakes, you know, and in comparison, it's just, geez. But, but here we are in a time when me saying that, hey, psychedelics aren't a part of Buddhism might actually be a controversial topic. For me, as someone who's been practicing for a long time, that seems very strange. And, and yet here we are, where people can pay a good amount of money to be taken to some resort in Peru or Puerto Rico or somewhere else and take some drugs and sit down and meditate and just see what happens. Okay, I mean, people can spend their money on what they want. Is that the Dharma? I don't think so. But in the article, there was something that I do think I can address in perhaps a non-controversial way. One of the teachers that promotes these, these drugs in, in using them in meditation had this to say, that she leads retreats and she sees people time and time again writing about their past history in meditation and they're listing this retreat with that teacher and that retreat with this teacher and from this tradition and that tradition. And for some reason, they've managed to hit some kind of, of wall. They say that their me meditation is stagnating. And 
because of this, because of what they perceive as some kind of lack of growth or lack of change, lack of experiences, they seek this person out to hopefully break those doors open and have some kind of progress. And I see something possibly flawed in that kind of thinking. I perhaps see a fundamental misunderstanding of what meditation does and what people do in meditation and a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what the path brings about in us and how perceptible it is to us from moment to moment. Now, when someone says their path is stagnating or their meditation is stagnating, what necessarily do they mean by that? Like, what does it mean to, to stagnate? I would say that the way meditation is, in, is given to us in Buddhism, there is no way to stagnate. What would stagnation look like? You're tuning in, usually into the, in my case, the breath, the body, the mind, and tapping into the awareness of this very moment, this reality. If it's stagnant, you're not paying attention. That's what I would tell those people. There couldn't possibly, possibly be anything stagnant about the breath, which is changing moment to moment. There couldn't possibly be anything stagnant in the body with sensations changing moment to moment. And the mind certainly is never stagnant. We always find things coming up in the mind, various thoughts, feelings, memories, concerns about the future, all of these things changing all of the time, never stopping, never stagnating. Now, maybe they mean in terms of, of progress. Perhaps they expected to be uh, kinder, wiser. Perhaps they meant that they expected some type of experience out of meditation. They didn't see any colors. There were no devas coming down from the skies and whispering secrets into their ears. But whoever promised them that? Whoever said that that's what would happen when they sat and meditated? That any of those things would happen? In Theravada Buddhism, the tradition that I'm from, there's only three promises. That when you meditate skillfully in the right way, when you develop strong tranquility and you develop strong mindfulness, you will see into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. That's it. No promise of an experience, promise of realization. And the problem with experiences is that they put us in a passive role. You just got to sit back and enjoy whatever ride experience is giving you. Realization is something you do yourself. You have to do it alone. That's why the Buddha said that nothing in this world, nothing in samsara could make you enlightened, could liberate you, could lead you to Nibbana. Only you can do that for yourself, to be a light to yourself. And in those times when he talked about someone being an island, he meant it in that way. If you seek happiness, if you seek wisdom from without, you won't find it. You find it in what he called this fathom-long body. Fathom-long because there's so much to explore there, so much to know and investigate there. For me, that is absolutely not stagnation. There's nothing to get bored with there or to not see growth with there if we're actually doing the work. Some people say that, that the proponents of, of these drugs are perhaps lazy, looking for the easy way. 
I mean, they're definitely looking for some type of expedient way because the changes we find in meditation happen over time. It's not quick. And the changes happen not because of experiences, but because we start seeing things differently. We have different types of realizations. That's why vipassana is sometimes referred to as insight meditation. But the insight is not about what flashes before your eyes. The insight is not about what weird tingly feelings you have in your body. It's about your realization of reality. Now, these drugs, some people are arguing, are not intoxicants. They're medicine. Okay, my general rule of thumb for testing out whether something is an intoxicant or not is the driving test. Could I take this and drive my car? Now, after 20 or so years of meditation, I take meditation every day and I can still drive my car just fine. And I can even drive on meditation. Just being with the body and the mind, being in the present moment, I might even argue it makes me a better driver. So meditation is not something that distracts the mind or deludes the senses. It's something that helps you live and embody more fully. You are more deeply in the senses in this present moment, more aware, not less. Now, this test, people might hear that and think, maybe I'm talking about, well, what about the pain meds I take that make me drowsy? Yeah, you probably shouldn't be driving on that, but that's not what I mean. You know, I take these ones, they make my vision blurry and I get dizzy. That's not what I'm talking about. Psychedelic drugs, you can't drive because it's like, well, I would, but like the giant squid has taken up like three lanes. That's something different, isn't it? Can't we say that maybe that's something different? That that's not what we're talking about in terms of, of delving deeply into reality and seeing past our self-created illusions? The illusions that we mostly are caught up in, again, are those same three. The illusion of permanence. We don't see impermanence. The illusion that samsara can bring us ultimate, permanent happiness and peace. We see dukkha, right? And the same thing with self. We live with the illusion of me, my, and mine, and I. And again, when we pierce through that, we see the truth of non-self, anatta. But again, that wouldn't happen, those realizations, from just a shift from one illusion into another kind of illusion. We have to step out of illusion entirely. But it has to happen with a clear mind. I think that for some people, they, they get caught up in the idea of experiences, that meditation and Buddhism, any Eastern path that may, they may or may not have fetishized, really comes down to all these really cool experiences. Uh, I know that when I was really young and learning about chakras and stuff like that, I was really caught up in what, my, what experiences I might feel with that, various colors and tingles and sensations. Uh, and I'm still caught up with experiences in different ways. Now I can bring it back to the, the milkshake thing. Ah. A lot of people have different hobbies. Sadly, probably my hobby is watching TV and eating food. It didn't always start out that way. A lot of things happened. My wife has been suffering through depression and anxiety on a pretty like, high level. And... I've been trying to be supportive with her, and so we end up 
sitting together because she doesn't want to leave the house because of the anxiety. I get a little bored. I start peeking into the fridge. We start watching Sugar Rush on Netflix, and then we're craving sweets. You know, things like this happen. And so this past year, I've been putting on a lot of weight, unfortunately, right? Unfortunate for my health. I did hear that there was this one person who went to one of my talks and said, you know, he's a great teacher, but he'd be much more attractive if he lost the weight. And I thought, as a Dharma teacher, that's really what I'm concerned with, how attractive I am. But here you go. That's what some people are concerned about. But things did, did get really bad. My, my wife got to a point where she needed some serious help and was an inpatient for about a week. And so this is someone I share a bed with every night, and she wasn't there. And I could only see her for about an hour at a time a day, and that was it. And it was really, really stressful. And yes, I've been practicing meditation for a long time. I've been Buddhist for a long time. And I had a lot of things to, to help me out. And I wasn't completely spiraling. And yet I, I picked up this weird habit for that week, which was every night after I visited her, on the way home, I would go through the sonic drive through and get a milkshake. I just wanted something to just perk me up a little bit. I was going to go to an empty house. I wasn't going to be able to see my wife or know, know what was going on with her. And things get really tricky because she's a type 1 diabetic with a nursing staff that maybe doesn't know her particular needs very well. And that was evident because her blood sugar kept doing this the entire time she was there. So I had no way to call her and check on her. She had no way of really calling me unless it was like a really big emergency. And, uh, and so I would just sit there at night and just have a milkshake. And this, this would be even after my, my mother-in-law took me out to dinner. We had a big meal and I was already full. And so I got a small milkshake. I still did it, right? Because I wanted to get into those senses I wanted a good, happy experience. And I turn on the TV, and then there it is. I'm filling up my eyes, my ears, my nose, my tongue, my body. I'm feeling the, the full feeling, which when you feel kind of empty inside is a good feeling. You like it. And so we, we do seem to seek out experiences, which is precisely the point the Buddha made, that because of the way we live in the world, because we are born into this world, because we have senses, we live to gratify them. And so because we live to gratify these senses, we're constantly caught up in craving and clinging. Now to get back to these people who feel like their meditation has stagnated, what are they craving? And what are they clinging to? Are they craving certain kinds of experiences, be they positive or negative? Are they clinging to a belief about what meditation should or shouldn't be? Now, those are questions for them, but these are also questions we can ask ourselves about our own meditation, about the way we live our lives, about the way we interact with others. What are we craving and what are we clinging to? I can say that when I was going through that really rough week, there were a lot of things I was craving and there were a lot of things that I, that I was clinging to. Didn't have my wife didn't have a lot of things that I felt like I should be having in, the, in those moments. I was definitely craving some type of, of feeling, and I sought it out in the form of a chocolate milkshake. And who doesn't like a chocolate milkshake? Some people, when they go to Sonic, they get real fancy. They get the Oreo cookie, and there's peanut butter and stuff like that. I'm old-fashioned. Chocolate milkshake. But it can be anything. There are a lot of things that people find that they, that they attach to, that they cling to. 
for safety, for hope, for happiness. And it can happen to any, any one of us, regardless of how long we've been on the path. Because we are born in these bodies, because we have these senses, because we seek to gratify them. What meditation does is not just make those things go away, poof, like magic. Often what they do is allow us to see that it's going on. We still then have to apply the appropriate kind of energy to make the appropriate kind of changes. So for me, it's, me, it's meant trying to cut back on the calories, cut back on the sweets. And I think for the most part, I'm starting to slim down a little bit. I can't say that like progress has been amazing because I still had like a mini milk, milkshake the other day because they're so good, you know? But progress. And progress keeps coming because when you do follow this path, this eightfold path, you keep creating windows for change. You keep creating opportunities to investigate your reality and see what is causing suffering to yourself and others and to see what benefits yourself and others. But we always have to act accordingly. Now, I, I would say that my experience with intoxicants are fairly limited. I've, I've had a bit of alcohol here and there. I've certainly been drunk before. I have had marijuana before, but then that's pretty much it. A lot of the harder stuff out there I never really was interested in. I would say what I've mostly attached to is food, and it ends up being very obvious. It's easy to see. But intoxicants, I mean, the craziest thing I ever did is I, I got really high at Burning Man one time that I went. And mostly it's because there really wasn't anything else to do there but get high. And I guess that was the point. I don't know. My, my friends had told me that Burning Man was going to be this magical and religious and spiritual experience. That's what I had been promised. Because before then, this was, I think, like kind of in the earlier 2000s, I wasn't all that interested in Burning Man. Like, I knew it was a thing. It mostly sound, sounded like a big, week-long rave slash party. Not my scene, really. But I had some close friends of mine who knew about my interest in mysticism and magic and meditation, and they knew that I was the spiritual sort, and they said, that's the place for you. It's so spiritual there. You'll love it. And so I, I, I bought into the idea. I said, you know, maybe I will. And so I spent a bunch of money getting all the gear together, and we, we planned for the trip, and we rented out this big uh, van to, to take a group of five or six of us. And I, I went, expecting something spiritual to happen. And uh, again, seeking out some type of experience. What I found were a lot of people really kind of there to party and, and just kind of be in this experience of, of Burning Man. And it's not good or bad. I, I don't really moralize about this stuff, but it, it certainly wasn't anything I was looking for. And I thought I was going to hang out with my friends, and they all started taking off and doing a bunch of various things that I really didn't want to get into. So I, I stayed at our camp, and there was this guy there who... He was the drug guy in our camp. He just had a bunch of stuff. And he had these brownies. And I had never had those before. And I said, oh, those look interesting. I've got nothing else to do. Maybe I'm here at Burning Man to try this. 
And uh, I didn't know how strong they were because this guy made them and he probably had a pretty high tolerance, I'm assuming. And I, I start taking a few of them and I think I took maybe four or five of them. And I look at him and I say, is this enough? And he says, oh yeah, I should have probably paid attention to that. That seemed a good sign that maybe it was too much. I went ahead and took those. Now, I bring this up because some of these people talking about this are advocating like do, taking high doses of cannabis and then meditating. Well, I inadvertently took a very high dose of edibles, sat down in a chair, and I guess you could call that meditation. But what I did notice was how it seemed to remove me from my senses. Things were slowing down in weird ways. People would speak and it would take me a long time to kind of get through that fog and speak back to them. And, and I would pay attention to stuff, but kind of in the wrong way, everything else would kind of fade away around it. And that experience was pretty much enough to make me never want to try that stuff again. Certainly not in search of a spiritual experience and certainly not in any way to boost my meditation because it did seem to dull my senses and it did seem to affect the way I was interacting with the world. We want to make sure that what we're doing is waking us up more, tuning us into this present moment more. Whether it's pleasure we find there, whether it's pain that we find there, discomfort, dissatisfaction, or perhaps neutral experiences, the ones we find the most boring. And when you meditate day in and day out, more often than not, it's the neutral experiences you find there. It's really the ones we don't want to be with. See, pain and discomfort, we're kind of okay with in a weird way because it's something for us to fixate on, even if it's in a negative way. Like, I don't like this, this sucks, it's terrible, pins and needles, why am I doing this? We like that. We can kind of fit or fix ourselves around that. But neutral experiences, how do we stay with those? It's sort of like lukewarm tea. It doesn't really taste like anything. You don't get a hot sensation on your mouth. You don't get a cool sensation on your mouth. It's just sort of a big cup of nothing. Good, find more nothing. How else do you think you're going to figure out what anatta means? You've got to find nothing in everything. That's how you find it. Embrace the neutral moments, the boring ones. They're the best teachers. People focus too much on the pleasure and pain. Focus on the neutral. You'll find a lot of answers there. That's what I've been thinking about anyway. And again, as I said, I, I didn't mean to talk about this today, and I was actually a bit nervous about talking about it today because it does seem to be a sore point for certain people. Certainly is on Facebook. Isn't that a great place to visit? Don't you all just love being on Facebook where you have really logical, rational interactions with others? And of course, you've changed a few minds here and there, and your mind's been changed too. None of that has happened ever. A lot of disagreement, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of hurt. And what I've seen is that even with this article, you have some coming to the defense of, of these teachers who are promoting the use of what I think are intoxicants. But then you have others that perhaps are reacting too strongly in the other direction. Buddhism's over, man. It's over. This is the death knell of Buddhism. 
it's done, lion's roar killed it. It's perhaps a bit too strong. <laughs> lion's roar is the, the one that published the article, you know. That's probably a too strong of a statement because for every one person who calls himself a Buddhist taking all these drugs, there are probably hundreds, if not thousands in the world, quietly practicing, not interested in any of this stuff. And they ha probably have the better sense than even I to be on Facebook. And if they are, they're probably sharing really good cute pictures of cats, which is a better idea. We should all be sharing cat pictures. That's the way we'll heal Facebook. But there it is, you know, on Facebook, this kind of nastiness that permeates. And uh, it, it permeates in weird ways because you'll have people who say, look, drugs and Buddhism don't mix. We shouldn't be advocating that. But then in the, in the second sentence, they go, I mean, I do drink and smoke pot every once in a while. Like, ah, still kind of missing the point, right? It's not that those things go away right away. I don't often talk about it too much, but the very same day I officially took precepts, that night someone offered me a drink and I went ahead and had one, right? I rationalized it at the time that my temple says that the fifth precept is to not become intoxicated. So maybe a drink here and there is okay. Problem with craving and clinging, though, is that one easily becomes two, and two becomes three, and then you have a really bad day, and then it's four or five, and whoa, what happened to the six-pack? It's weird how that happens, right? At this point, um, I'm just done. And, and it, it, was a, it was a slow thing, because... In, in today's culture, it's easy to be that kind of Dharma teacher, where you write a really great book, you have a bunch of fans out there, and then there you are with a cup of wine with a picture of your dog. And I don't know what message that really sends as a Dharma teacher. Again, there's no moralizing there. I'm just not sure how we're really holding the precepts. And I think part of why this happens is because of the way many of us as Westerners approach the Dharma. Um, I know that a lot of us get started in a more secular mindset. For those of us who went the more traditional route by going to monasteries, vihadas, temples, places like that, pretty much right away you learn about the five, if not the eight precepts. Because when you stay there, you have to follow those rules. So from the very beginning, you find out that Buddhism is a very holistic path that touches every aspect of your life, and that what you do off the cushion is as important as what you do on the cushion, and so you, you live a certain kind of life. Buddhists from other parts of the world, with some types, sometimes glaring exceptions, but for the most part, follow a certain kind of life. They try to live the five precepts every day. And the fifth precept in Pali, Sura Meriya Majapama Dattana, is pretty cut and dry that we avoid intoxication, that we avoid intoxicants that lead to intoxication and heedlessness. That's the big part there. I can't think of a time I ever had any kind of intoxicant in any amount where I could say that I was heedful. I know Burning Man's a pretty strong example, but even just a house party, even just a drink, because there's certain things that follow with that. Certain things that, that seem to go hand in hand with certain kinds of experiences. 
And so if we do make the determination, the decision to be Buddhists, perhaps part of that means living a different way in the world. And that might mean some sacrifices, giving things up. And I think we're afraid of that, especially our experiences. We're afraid of giving up certain things and living a life that might look a bit like renunciation. Now, I know that in some way I'm pretty old school about that. Full disclosure, if I wasn't married to my wife, I'd be looking for ordination right now. So I'm on the other end of it. But I think that even for lay people who are just intending to live the life of a householder, there is a certain amount of renunciation involved. Now, it doesn't mean giving up all of your possessions, sleeping on the floor, you know, eating cup of noodles every night because you've given all your money away. That's not what that means. But it does mean that we need to be careful about what we consume, what we allow into our body and our minds, and what hold we allow those things to have on our lives. So maybe the kind of things we watch matter. Maybe even I need to stop with the Netflix a little bit, stop with the Facebook, certainly. I know I made a couple comments that seemed like a good idea at the time until someone took them the wrong way and then they wanted to fight and I just had to say, suit yourself and walk away. But then maybe I should have made those comments in the first place. But then in terms of consumption, you know, ayahuasca is a pretty crazy example, but you know, maybe the milkshake is a pretty crazy example. Was I really doing my body any good gulping down a chocolate shake because I had a stressful day? I don't know. You know, it, it's tough. We're all just trying to find our way through. You know, and it's real easy to look at what others are doing and say maybe they shouldn't be doing that. But I think when we do have those inclinations, we should turn towards ourselves first and see what are we doing that maybe we shouldn't be doing. What, what am I doing that is actually causing suffering, causing harm? Always return to yourself when you see yourself turning towards the actions of others, the thoughts of others, the way others practice. I think the, the best solution for those that are concerned that we're on the brink of the death of Buddhism is to simply be good Buddhists, you know, and, and what that means is, the, is to practice sincerely, to seek out wisdom and knowledge sincerely, to work on the Brahma Viharas, meaning that we were, are working on loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy or empathetic joy and equanimity. And it means being here in this moment, facing reality head on. That's how we find all of those other qualities. You know, I've had people ask me how we develop something like equanimity, how we develop something like compassion. And I find its basis in wisdom. I think there's a reason why proper meditation always has some component of tranquility or concentration and some component of mindfulness or sati or uh, you know what they call vipassana insight because we're after liberating wisdom liberating wisdom always has that quality of kindness and compassion of joy and equanimity so I've been talking about this for a while I might have perhaps gone too far. I don't know. Again, I was worried about this. 
because the way I'm trying to live my life as a Dharma teacher is I'm trying to make sure that everyone has a good day with my talk. I, I talked to one of my teachers about being a Dharma teacher and what I was trying to do, and I said, you know, I, I hope what I say helps them. And he says, you can't guarantee what you say will help them. Just shoot for entertaining. And, you know, maybe that'll be enough. Just be entertaining. And so I hope what I said was helpful, but that can never be guaranteed. I hope I was at least entertaining. Thank you. <laughs>